Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. This is episode 19 of season four of the Next Step Podcast. It's also a book reading on Facebook Live. We've been reading Delight, Discipleship as the Adventure of Loving and Being Loved. Uh, Today was a sunny day in Michigan, a little bit cooler, a good day for our national election. Got up early and voted today with my daughter Naomi. Today was the first time that she got to participate in a national election, so that was really fun to be a part of that with her. Uh, Election results have not yet started coming in any minute now. They're expecting some election results, so I'm glad on the eve of this uh, national election you're choosing to spend some time with me, and I think we could use a little delight tonight. Aunt Elva, thanks for asking, uh, had some fluid on her lungs, so she was in in the hospital overnight and is still in the hospital again. They did do a COVID test just to make sure, and that COVID test came back negative, so we're very thankful for that. So Aunt Elva, we're rooting for you. Hang in there. Uh, good to hear that your sister Aunt Ginny is, is coming out to see you. We look forward to that visit as well. Uh, last week, last night, we ended with uh, the first part of a section that's called "Wear Your Helmet and Go Have Fun," <clears throat> and that we talked about what it means for a child to ride a bike and to have some parameters, some rules. And yet, the rules aren't supposed to get in the way of having fun; they're supposed to allow the child to have fun. Uh, it was important to me. In fact, it says here on page two ten, right there in bold, "The fear of failure sucks joy." If you have to get every detail of riding your bike right or else, you'll never find delight in riding your bike. So there's some things at the end of this chapter I want to talk about that are dangers that we need to be aware of, that uh, traps we could easily fall into. But I don't want the concern of those traps or those dangers to take the place of the delight that this this following Jesus is supposed to be. So I said here... uh, Any fun worth having involves some risk. Discipleship is no different. When you fall down, get back up, dust off, and get back in the saddle seat. Banana seat, never mind. Sometimes you might need a Band-Aid or some comfort from your mom, but don't let the fear of getting it wrong prevent you from flying down the hill at top speed and stay out of the traffic. So that's, that's the balance we're trying to strike here. There's some dangerous things I want you to be aware of because if you go play in the traffic, you're gonna get hurt. But keeping that in mind, go have fun. Okay, so we just got done talking about rest, work, and play. And now I want to talk about the danger in rest, work, and play. I'm starting at the top of page 211. The danger in rest, work, or play stems from a natural human inclination, even in the Garden of Eden. We humans have had a tendency to focus on the gift at expense of the giver. Rest, work, and play are no different. Of course, if you take 48 weeks of vacation, your job is going to suffer. And of course, if you take zero weeks of vacation, your job is also going to suffer. Play can become an idol we set up and enjoy not with God, but against God and against God's calling on our lives. The danger is real. You see something like that in Amos chapter 6. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful 
and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. God loves a good party, but idle feasting while the innocent suffer becomes idle feasting. (laughs) I-D-L-E-I-D-O-L. Idle feasting becomes idle feasting. Worshipping at the altar of sloth when God has given you good work to do for your good, your neighbor's benefit, and God's glory. Sleep is an act of trust. Lounging on your couch all day, every day, lounging on your couch all day every day is ignoring God's gift of the day. I think God thinks improvising on musical instruments is the bomb. God even commissioned choirs and musicians as well as artists and craftsmen right besides priests and Levites for holy service in the temple. Turn toward God. Music is one of God's greatest gifts. But separate the gift from the giver and you get music tuned in on itself. Play is a gift and any gift can become an idol. Rest (coughs) follows the same pattern. Rest can become a burden as well as an idol. The book of Proverbs has this to say about too much rest. Proverbs 26, 13 to 15. The lazy person claims there's a lion on the road. Yes, I'm sure there's a lion out there. As a door swings back and forth on its hinges, so the lazy person turns over in bed. Lazy people take food in their hand and don't even lift it to their mouths. It's gotten pretty bad when you're so lazy you can't be bothered to get the scoop of ice cream out of the bowl and all the way up to your mouth. I need a nap. Play and rest, if unchecked, take over your whole life and drive you to focus on yourself at the expense of those around you. Just like work. If you work and work and work and work and tell yourself you are too important to take a vacation, too busy to lose a weekend, too essential to get sidetracked by other people, then you will tend to focus on work at the expense of relationships with other people and with God. You can work so much that your faith and your family suffer. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. That's Psalm 127 again. You face a real danger. But don't let that suck the joy out of this adventure of following Jesus. You aren't going to rest, work, or play. (laughs) You aren't going to rest, work, or play perfectly. But focusing on your effort is a sure way to lose hope as well as joy. Wear your helmet, sure, but go have fun. Go race around the trails. Go pop a few wheelies. Go see how fast you can fly down that hill with both feet in the air and no brakes. Just stay out of the traffic. How do you balance the fear of failure with the delight of trying? I think relationship is key, whether we're looking at rest, work, or play. God takes a day of rest 
a Sabbath as soon as creation is complete. God's people are supposed to follow suit. But Jesus has to remind even the most religious people of his day, Sabbath was created as a gift for human beings. Human beings weren't created just so someone could follow the rules of Sabbath. It's about relationship, not just following rules. I was stunned to find that Sabbath rest is actually talked about as a covenant in the Old Testament. God rests, and so God's people rest, and that rest binds them together in relationship. Exodus 31, 16-17 says, The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So God God delights to shape the rhythm of rest, work, and play into the creation in ways that reflect our relationship with God. Although we have the capacity to abuse them, rest, work, and play are good gifts. Fun gifts. Gifts you are meant to take out of the garage and ride all over the neighborhood, by yourself and with others, until you can fly like the wind and jump hills like a pro and come back, often dirty and sometimes bloody, but always with a smile on your face and a story of adventure to tell. When you receive them with delight and in on independence on Jesus, your rest, your work, and your play move you into deeper relationship with God, your creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And that makes God rejoice with playful delight. The last section in this chapter is called Jesus Near You and Formed in You. Jesus Near You and Formed in You. Even good gifts make terrible gods. When the people of God were wandering in the wilderness, their commitment to rebellion brought judgment. Talk about intentionally playing in the traffic. So God had to set things right in their relationship. That often involved the people experiencing the consequences of their broken relationship with God in ways that drove them back into relationship with the God who delights when sinners turn back and come home. One case in point, the bronze snake on a pole. Venomous snakes infested the camp of God's wandering people. These fiery serpents manifested God's judgment on persistent and unrepentant sin. People were getting bit. People were suffering. People were dying. When they turned back to the God of covenant faithfulness, God had Moses fashion a snake out of bronze and hang it on a pole where all the people could see it. People were still getting bit, but anyone who looked on the promise of God suspended on that crude tree saw and lived. See Numbers chapter 24 verses 4 to 9 for the details. God gave a good gift. The people received the good gift. The good gift even saved. Years later, however, the people took that good gift and made it a god. Literally, the bronze snake became like any other idol. King Hezekiah 
uh, king of Israel known for his thorough reform had to destroy not only high places of Baal and Asherah poles, the king had to get rid of the bronze snake on a pole in 2 Kings 18. The good gift had turned into a fake god. The good gift had been turned into a fake god to rival the giver. Before we shake our heads too smugly at the stubbornness and stupidity of these ancient people of God, recognize that we, too, readily take God's good gifts and turn them into idols. We can make God's good gift of rest and use it to avoid serving God and loving our neighbor. We can turn God's good gift of work into the thing that receives all of our attention and effort, an idol that promises us fulfillment and hope for the future. We can make God's good gift of play a competition to see who can gratify the sinful nature in the most spectacular ways and then post evidence of it on social media. We're good at turning good gifts into idols. And good gifts make terrible gods. They always take and never give. They always expect more and more of you until you're exhausted in their service. Good gifts turned into gods always tear down your relationships, always destroy your self-esteem, burden you beyond what you can bear, and maximize despair, self-centeredness, and burden in your life. Why do we do that to ourselves? Thankfully, you have a God who delights to welcome sinners home. You have a God who continues to give you good gifts like rest and work and play because you can receive them even now in Jesus as good gifts that glorify the giver. You have a God who will... You have a God... Hmm, looks like a typo. You have a God who will perfect... Oh, haha. No, it's not a typo. You just have to put the emphasis on the right syllable. You have a God who will perfect the gifts of rest, work, and play in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What a relief. Here's the thing, though. Just as we can put rest, work, and play up on a pedestal and turn them into idols, we can actually take Jesus and turn him into a false god. I know that sounds odd. Jesus is good and holy and, and somehow religious. Jesus saves. How can we take something good and holy and religious that saves and turn it into that good gift into an idol? It almost doesn't make sense. Except that's exactly what God's people did with that bronze snake on a pole. It was good and holy, and it saved. And people took it and put it on a pedestal and made a false god out of it. Jesus said that sign of death hanging above the earth that took away God's judgment was somehow a picture of his own life and ministry and sacrificial death. In John three fourteen to 16 John, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Did you know John 3 verses 14 and 15 came right after John 3, came right before John 3, 16? No matter how often I see those verses back to back, I still get a little jolt of surprise. Like the bronze snake in the wilderness, Jesus is lifted up on a pole, and those who look on him in faith are saved. And, just like the bronze snake, we can take the good gift of Jesus and turn that gift into an idol. I know that sounds weird. Here's how it works. We turn Jesus into an idol when we set him up on a pedestal as an ideal to aspire to way out there somewhere. We have some vague sense that we're supposed to be like Jesus, and so we set the bar at Jesus and try our hardest to meet the standard of his love and life and work. Of course, we don't expect to do it perfectly, but the more we try to act like Jesus and love like Jesus and reach that ideal of Jesus way up on a pedestal, the more we despair of ever doing anything right. We get stuck between an unattainable goal and the sinking feeling that it'd be better to throw in the towel. Just as we can take the mythical caricatures of an independent woman and a self-made man and set them up on a pedestal as an ideal to strive for, we can make Jesus a caricature of ideal ethical and moral behavior that we have to strive for. I take charge of my discipleship, set Jesus up as my goal, and end up having to work hard to make my life look more like Jesus, which doesn't really seem fair to me since Jesus is God and therefore by definition already holy and perfect and loving in a way I never could be. And the more I struggle to bridge that gap between my life and the ideal Jesus, the more discouraged I get. As soon as I get discouraged by seeing Jesus as an ideal to aspire to way up there on a pedestal, I almost immediately start harboring the thought that Jesus must be cheating. I know that doesn't seem very pious, but even if I don't usually put it that crassly, it certainly seems to me that Jesus as an ideal is just not fair. I mean, Jesus is God for crying out loud. Of course Jesus is going to resist temptation and love the unlovable and lay down his life for his friends. Jesus must be sneaking in a little divine power to resist the devil, pulling off a second person of the Trinity magic trick to point to the kingdom, playing his God in the flesh card whenever the going gets too tough for his flesh. And as long as it seems to me that Jesus must be cheating, I can let myself off the hook when I'm called on to resist temptation or love my enemies or even delight in the work of the kingdom. I have a fallback position. Of course, Jesus can do all those things. He's God and I'm not. So why even try? Putting Jesus on a pedestal as the model of my own self-realized individualism makes being like Jesus a burden I have to carry. That burden sucks the joy out of my faith. I can let myself off the hook by separating myself even more from Jesus. That perfect Jesus on a pedestal is God and, and I'm not. To reach that, I, so I even try being like him. Or, 
I can try harder and harder to reach that ideal, even though I'm exhausted by the effort and secretly know I will never bridge the gap from between my life and Jesus. Or maybe I can hope God is grading on a curve and look at the people around me to notice that no matter how much a failure I am, I can always find someone worse. That way of treating Jesus as a moral example tears down my relationships, destroys my self-esteem, burdens me beyond what I can bear, and maximizes despair, self-centeredness, and burden in my life. Just like an idol. Thankfully, you have a God who delights to welcome sinners home. You have a God who continues to give you Jesus. You have a God who will perfect Jesus in you, in the resurrection of the dead, in the life of the world to come. What a relief. You're not wrong if you think Jesus left you an example to follow. In fact, Jesus says he's intentionally leaving an example for his followers. What's wrong is taking Jesus as an example and setting him up on a pedestal outside of you, outside of your reach as a gold standard to aspire to. That puts Jesus far away from you and makes it your work to get closer to him. That makes Jesus an ideal or an idol a relentless taskmaster that drives you to complacency or despair. When Jesus talks about you being like Jesus, he reverses the direction. Jesus bridges the gap from his side. The actions and attitudes of Jesus are not a pattern you're supposed to aspire to in your attitudes and actions. Rather, they are the pattern the potter uses as the model for shaping and molding you. The Spirit shapes the humble service of Jesus in your life. The Spirit shapes the dependence on the Father of Jesus in your life. The Spirit shapes the prayers of Jesus in your life. Your job is not to make your service, dependence, prayers, and life look a little more like Jesus. No, the Spirit is shaping the service, dependence, prayers, and life of Jesus in you. Jesus is not far off up on a pedestal for you to aspire to. Jesus is near you and being shaped in you by the loving hands of the potter. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Jesus is the design the potter has in mind as God shapes you and molds you and makes you beautiful and unique and useful. Becoming more like Jesus is not supposed to burden you or make you despair. Jesus explicitly says that the purpose and result of following his example is joy. Not joy you're supposed to aspire to. The joy of Jesus shaped in you by the Spirit. We looked at John 15 verse 11 way back in chapter 1, joyful delight. You remember? Hear it again. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You now know that that joy word is kara, like caress with an ah, the joyful delight related to grace. You remember that this upper room on Monday, Thursday, one of the places Jesus 
is most specific about the example he is leaving and about what it means to follow that example. While teaching on the same night he washed his disciples' feet, Jesus makes his attitude and his work the exemplar of all those who follow him. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Selected verses from John 13 and 14. Jesus clearly thinks you're supposed to follow his example. And if these were the only things Jesus had to say on that command Monday, Thursday, it would be reasonable to set his life up on a pedestal as an ideal you're supposed to work hard to emulate. Thankfully, as we saw back in chapter 1, that's not all Jesus says on this Maundy Kara Thursday. Jesus points to the way we're supposed to experience and engage his example, a way that completely reverses the direction of our idolatry, a way that brings joy. Jesus says, The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. I have told you this so that my joy, kara may be in you, and that your joy, kara, may be complete. Jesus uses a logic we're familiar with, as I, so you. But we tend to think that means, as Jesus does all this awesome stuff, so I have to work really, really hard to do awesome stuff like that too. We put Jesus way out there somewhere as an ideal, and then crush ourselves trying to reach that ideal. Notice how Jesus actually uses the logic of as I, so you. Spoiler alert, it's not how you think. Jesus says, as I live in dependence on the Father, and the Father works in me through the power of the Spirit who fills me, so you live in my dependence on the Father shaped in you, and I will be in you and work in you through the power of that same Spirit who now fills you and shapes me in you. Jesus doesn't set himself up as an ideal outside of you, far away from you, that you're trying to climb up to reach. No! The exact opposite is true. Jesus comes down to you and makes his home in you and pours out his Spirit on you. The power of the Spirit working in you shapes your desirable delight to reflect the desirable delight of the Father. The power of the Spirit working in you empowers your work to bring thoughtful delight to the Father, and in the process makes both Jesus' joyful delight and your joyful delight full to the point of overflowing. 
God delights to shape your life and your heart to reflect the heart and life of Jesus. As soon as you make it your work to shape your life to be more like Jesus, you set Jesus up as an idol. Ah, you set Jesus up as an ideal, as an idol, and you will kill yourself and likely others with the burden of running your own discipleship life. But in his grace and with great joy, Jesus steps off the pedestal you've put him on. Jesus abandons the false throne of your ideal and instead sets up shop in your heart. You don't have to work hard to climb up to the ideal of Jesus. Jesus comes all the way down to meet you right where you are. Jesus pours out his spirit, the spirit that enables Jesus to be with you and comfort you and forgive you and shape you. By the power of that spirit at work in you every day, you begin to look more and more like Jesus every day. As you look more and more like Jesus, you become more and more uniquely the person God created you to be. You aren't on an assembly line where one size fits all when it comes to following Jesus. You are being lovingly handcrafted by the skillful hands of a master potter whose ultimate design is Jesus and whose individual works are all unique masterpieces as different from each other as they are like Jesus. Discipleship is not your work. You aren't in charge. And the result is not only a life that looks more and more like the Jesus who lives and works in you. The result is joy, real joy, full joy that flows out of your life into the lives of others. Be at peace. Your job is not to rise up to the standard of Jesus. Jesus is near you. Jesus is being formed in you. And you get to enjoy the ride. Yes, you will do the works Jesus did. Jesus seems to think you will do even greater things than these. But those works flow from the active presence of the Spirit in your life. Jesus himself is working in you both to will and to do that which is pleasing in his sight. So set down the burden of trying to be like Jesus so you can receive the delight of Jesus being shaped in you by the power of the Spirit and to the immense delight of the Father. Don't let the fear of failure suck the joy out of discipleship. It's not your job to make yourself more like Jesus. Your job is to keep needing Jesus every day. The Spirit will take care of the rest. Chapter 10 then ends with uh, the prayer of examine, a, a prayer exercise uh, I modified from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, maybe before you go to bed tonight, you might look at that prayer of examine. It's a way of bringing your emotions to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I responded to all different kinds of things in my day today. I'd like to notice those emotions in your presence because usually our emotions are an indicator that Jesus is up to something by the power of his spirit in our lives. So however this election night goes, 
you might take your emotions to Jesus in prayer and hold them and wonder with him what those feelings mean and what they indicate he's doing in your life by the power of his spirit. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in the fact that I don't have to kind of keep climbing up to that ideal of Jesus, but that the Spirit is making Jesus present to me and shaping me to be more like Jesus a little bit every day. That that relieves a burden and opens up a space for play and even delight. Hey, thank you so much for joining us tonight. You know the drill. Uh, if you're a patron, thank you for your patronage. That regular support really helps. If now is a good time for you to consider becoming a, a 3 or 9 or 25 or $100 a month patron of Next Step Press, the link is in the description here. Uh, you heard me say last night that our new hymn journal, the Advent Hymn Journal, Light in the Darkness, just came out. Really excited about that. Check that out as well. Get yourself a copy of Delight, and I will see you tomorrow night as we begin now chapter 11. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 is all that's left, and chapter 12 is pretty short. So the end is in sight. Good night, my lovelies. Uh, we'll see you next time at Next Step Press.